Welcome back to Sermon Notes. Uh, this is Garland. I got Michael and Josh with us, and uh, we are marching along in our Ephesians uh, study. Um, the last couple of weeks haven't been posted. Um, we're working on that, and uh, it'll get uh, hopefully posted with this one for this Sunday. So you can go back and listen to those two uh, if you've missed them. I know you miss just listening to us talk you out know, there. Sometimes so. I give a sermon, and I wonder if anyone's <laughs> listening. Now I'm recording podcasts, and I know no one's listening. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so for those of you that have just been uh, on pins and needles wondering where we were. Uh, we had some technical issues and they should be coming out uh, this week. So um, as we continue, we are this week going to be finishing the first major section of Ephesians. So, uh, you know, most Bible commentators and scholars think the first three chapters kind of form a unit giving us uh the position or the identity or the doctrine concerning our standing in Christ. And then we'll move to, we might call it more pragmatic. What does it look like to walk this out in chapters four through especially six, nine. And then um, we have this big charge to go out and fight the spiritual battle in six, 10 and following. Uh, so we're finishing up and what we have in Ephesians three, we'll be picking it up in verse 14 and finishing that chapter uh, begins um, really Paul concluding the thought he began in verse one with, he wants to pray. Right. And so, Michael, give us insight as to where we're going this week. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, in Ephesians 1, verse 15, he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And then he goes on to pray. And uh, Garland, you taught that. You taught Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And you talked about the prayer, the power that's available to us through prayer. And it's interesting he introduces that with for this reason. And then as you said, chapter three, verse one, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then virtually every modern English translation puts a dash, a hyphen there. It indicates a break, a break in thought. Because in verse two, he says, assuming you've heard about right. my ministry to the Gentiles. And then he goes on, and this was Clark's teaching last week, um, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery that Jews and Gentiles are now united in one person. Um, Bible commentators like to call it an excursus. Um, mm-hmm. he, he, takes a, he takes a circular route. He takes a side, a side road. And so in 14, he returns. In 314, he returns to his original thought. For this reason, like I said, and then he says, I bow my knees. The NIV says, I kneel before the Father. And, and even that's interesting because we know that kneeling wasn't the normal position for prayer in the Jewish community, in the synagogue. Um, you know, when Jesus told the parable about um, the Pharisee uh, who, who went to the temple and said, I'm glad I'm not like this sinner, um, the sinner stood and prayed. That was normal. And so for Paul to kneel, I can't help Garland but picture him in his jail cell as he's, um, we might use the word dictating, um, as he's, he's speaking the, the words that will become the letter to the Ephesians. He probably has someone writing those down for him. I can't help but picture him kneeling there as he prays this incredible prayer. And what does he pray for? He prays in verse 16 um, that the Ephesian believers will be uh, strengthened. Strengthened, he says in 17, so that Christ can dwell in their hearts, um, so that they can be established in love. And then he says, so that they can have power. It's literally, so they can be strong enough together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp the love of Christ. And so just like at the end of chapter one, Paul's prayer for them 
is not that their situation will be changed or that the Lord's going to do some external thing that's going to change. He doesn't pray that the temple of Artemis will be destroyed or that they'll stop being oppressed economically, or he prays that they will know and experience the love of Christ like they never have before. And it's it's really an incredibly powerful prayer. Um, I am right now rereading Tim Keller's book that's simply called Prayer. And I'm reading it with someone else. And so um, we're kind of on a schedule. And our schedule for this week was section four. Well, guess what section four is? Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. What timing for you. I know, it was perfect. And so just to read as Keller unpacked this incredible prayer and just showed us how it really is in a lot of ways a model prayer, that we should pray this for ourselves, we should pray this for our friends, our family, Um, even people that we're praying will come to know the Lord. Um, And so this morning, I've I've just taken some time and prayed through this prayer multiple times for different people, um, that they would be rooted and established in the love of Christ, that they would have power together with the people um, around us in our in our fellowship of faith to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is, to know this love that he says surpasses knowledge. The only way you can know something that surpasses knowledge is by experiencing it so that they would experience this love in such a powerful way that they'll be filled up with all the fullness of God. And so um, it's just a really powerful passage that I personally have benefited from marinating in it over these weeks, preparing to teach it on Sunday. And um, I don't know when our listeners will hear this, but if they are able to worship with us on Sunday, um, this will be for October the 9th, or if they maybe watch it online or listen to the podcast of it, um, we're going to have a little bit different service because we're going to try to experience the passage together through word, through prayer, through singing, through praising God. Um, it really is a passage, not so much to be dissected and taken apart, but to be experienced and embraced. So I think it's interesting. And just just remind us again, Paul, as he's in jail, seemingly never seems to... Uh, bring the circumstances to mind in his prayers. He has such a, his eyes are so much higher in his prayer life. And I think they can be instructive for us because so often I think our prayer life, I know mine is um, small personal things, normally uh, things that I'm uh, nervous about or worried about or things that I need. And that's not bad. Um, The Lord is our father and he cares for us. But it is interesting that in Paul's model prayer here, um, his eyes are just so much bigger than that. It's almost as if he knows something that oftentimes we don't, which is all those small things will slot appropriately in their priority when we understand this. Um, And so uh, any comment on that? It's just always interesting to me to see how Paul does that. I totally agree with you. And I've actually been very convicted about that as I've studied this passage, because I, like you, have a tendency to pray um, for little small things in my life, things that I'm concerned about, things that I feel like I need God's help with. And like you said, that's appropriate. But I've also been convicted of how I pray for others. And so usually as I pray for others, um, whether it's people in my community group, um, it's people in our church, it's people I see prayer requests come through for, I'm praying for their circumstances, their health, their marriage, their finances, their job, their relationship with their children, all of which are appropriate. Um, And yet all of which, all those things seem to shrink in light of knowing the height and width and depth um, and length 
of the love of Christ and the being filled with the measure of the fullness of God. And so to pray for those things, even for those same people. And so as I've considered people who are battling health things and prayed for them, man, I've been praying that they will know and experience the love of God. As I think about somebody who's in relational strife, yes, I'm praying that their marriage will be healed. And that's wholly appropriate. And we should pray and, and look for God to move in that. But at the same time, I'm praying, God, fill them, fill them, give them a knowledge of your love that elevates them above their circumstance. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you. And it has definitely impacted how I've been praying lately. So this is Sermon Notes, which uh, oftentimes the goal here, we have a, uh, a weekly meeting on Monday morning where we spend four weeks talking about each passage and kind of breaking it down. And uh, we, we'll spend, you know, upwards to probably over an hour talking about each passage. Then, you know, you and me oftentimes, or, you know, you, me and Clark or whoever will end up um, just kind of talking about them in our office. And um, then we've got to dwindle that down to a, you know, a 30 or so minute sermon. And that leaves stuff out most of the time. So that's really good or really important important, um, but it just can't get in there on a Sunday morning for 30 minutes. So what would be something that as we're looking at this in our small groups, in discipleship, or our, our just our personal study, that just makes the passage pop or come alive or something you had to set aside a, a structure or word study or historical background? What, what stood out this time? Well, actually, I'm going to now do one of my favorite things to do on this podcast, which is to... Pull yes. out a sermon note. Yes. <laughs> a literal sermon note that you sent me. Paper. That you sent me, Garland. I printed it off. You emailed this to me. And uh, this this informed, a lot of times I think things inform our understanding of the passage to enable us to teach it, mm-hmm. um, but that we don't end up uh, reproducing or talking about specifically in the sermon. And this was super helpful for me. And I think you have a copy of it in front of you as well. But you took the Greek and you went through and you did what you call the super literal translation. And you highlighted these connecting phrases, these in order that's um, we might translate it. And so, um, yeah, I would invite you, Garland, to talk about this a little bit, how it kind of ties this uh, prayer together and shows us what Paul's really emphasizing in his prayer. Yeah, um, Paul is a, a very um, dense writer oftentimes. And um, sometimes as we look at these in English, uh, you know, we'll have commas and periods and none of that was supplied in the original translation or the original writing. Uh, a lot of how sentences and paragraphs were formed was through um, dependent and independent clauses, connecting words. And that's the, that's the same case that we have here. So we begin with this uh, statement in 14 and 15. Uh, I bend my knees before the Father. Then... What we have is a description of that. He's the one out of which all the families are named. Then we have a repetition. Three, they're called uh, in order that clauses. The Greek word is henna. And it's followed by a particular kind of verb. And that same thing is true here. It's called a subjunctive verb. Uh, and here they are. And you can see them in your English translation. Uh, whatever your translation does with this, either so that or because or for this reason, however it translates this, mark this in verses 16, 18, and in verse uh, 19. They are in order that he might give or grant. I think a lot of translations go with grant. In order that, so that he might give. Then in verse 18, in order that you might be strong or strengthened. And the third in order that is in order that you might be filled. So we might say the content of the prayer I bend my knees before the Father, verse 16, so that, 
in order that he might give you something. And then what comes on the back side of that, verses 18 and 19, is in order that you might have a result, some kind of a result. You might be strengthened and that you might be filled. Um, and then the, you know, the grammar structures break down even more uh, subsequent to that. So in order that he might give you, and then if you look at the rest of verse 16 and verse 17, uh, we have two infinitive verbs here, and they actually are parallel to each other. The first, An infinitive verb, by the way, is a verb that is to be, to be something, to do something. So to blank, whatever that is, it's an infinitive form versus I run, a present tense form. Um, so we have four infinitives and they happen to parallel exactly underneath our in order that clauses. So I'll give them to you here. This is much easier visually to see. Uh, verse. So if you're listening to this driving, you're like, okay, I'm I'm out on this now. But uh, you might go back later and uh, and try to chart this out or graph this out on a piece of paper. Uh, I've been my knees for the Father. Verse 16. In order that He might give, then two infinitive verbs. The first is to be strengthened, and the second is. To at Christ would dwell, to dwell Christ within you is literally the super super literal way to translate that. Um, and then after verse eighteen, that He might strengthen you, two infinitive verbs: to grasp with all the saints and to know. So this is the actual flow of thought from Paul, and it's a little it becomes a little obscure in translation. But as you're working in this in your small group, uh, Paul's praying three big in order that's so that's for his prayer, and then. T- uh, the, the first two have subsets of reasons, we might say. And so this is how the flow of thought works. And if you're out there listening to this going, man, that's cool. I want that for every passage. Um, Paul's really dense and he does stuff like this. And this is the kind of thing that oftentimes makes for an outrageously boring sermon. Um, <laughs> nobody wants us to put that up on the screen, um, but it is helpful to see how this, how these letters are structured, and especially in Ephesians where Paul's using lots and lots and lots of really long sentences. Um, this can be helpful to see the flow of thought. Yes. And so the kind of work that you just walked us through, doing the hard work of the grammar and looking at the structure, this is how we unpack the passage. It's not a, simply a matter of just reading it and taking the first sense of the English, a gloss over. Kind um, of guessing. Yeah, yeah which, which that's a great start. Um, I recently heard a, a, a Bible teacher somewhere else, not someone at Fellowship, say, <laughs> I was wondering what Paul meant by this, so I Googled it. And, oh, oh dear. <laughs> and the person I was with said, at that point, I asked myself, should I continue to listen to this teacher? And so- um, That hurts my that hurts my soul a little bit. I know, <laughs> I know. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate you unpacking that for us. And I think the take home for the listener is to do the work to understand the passage rightly. And that's what takes time. And you don't have to have Greek and you don't have to have a bunch of tools, but you do need to read it carefully, to mark it up, to think about it, not give it the first gloss, not... Um, one of the things Keller warns about in his book that I've, I've of course, just been looking at is um, a lot of times we read something and we think, man, that was from the Lord and it was really from ourselves. It's a confirmation bias. We want God to, con- to tell us something we're looking for. And it's only when we look at it in context and we look at what the original author meant and we really consider it. And then the the important step that I want to urge our listeners to is processing it in community. If you are reading your Bible with other Holy Spirit 
indwelled people, you may find that your original conclusion was not right. And it's only in community that we can figure that out. When we're alone, when we're reading the Bible in a vacuum, man, we can get off in the weeds and not even know it. And so that's why Paul says, together with all the Lord's holy people in verse 18, this power to grasp the love of Christ only comes when we're rubbing shoulders with and doing life with other believers and we see God at work in their lives and we see how they're processing scripture. And man, our view of God can go from pretty small and focused on me to really huge pretty quickly when we do it together with all God's people. Yeah, I got two, two things by way of conclusion and one shameless plug. First thing by way of conclusion is since you're talking about Keller, uh, I've heard him say, and I, I just I just think this is so helpful. He'll say, oftentimes I'll read a passage and think that's really cool and maybe even you know sit on it for a moment and underline or journal about it. But I've heard him say, when I am really, really, really reading, trying, really trying to study my Bible and understand it, I want to take a passage, and this would be a great passage to try this with, and I've heard him say it this way, I want to try and learn that down to my toes. I want to let that wash over me. I want to experience, I want to think about the richness of it and what a passage this week to, to go on a walk with, having printed out in front of you, to, uh, to spend some time over the dinner table, whatever it may look like, marinating in each of the words and the nouns and the descriptors and the verbs, and and just soak it in. Do that with just verse 18 if you yes, want. Yeah. Unbelievable. Verse 18 is an invitation to meditate on the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, we might miss what Paul's trying to get at. Uh, second thing is, uh, by way of conclusion, is this. Um, this is why I love teaching expository. Um, I love teaching through books of the Bible. I love walking through it verse by verse. And it, it is comforting for me to know that... Th- our church takes this seriously. We really take seriously um, trying to understand the Bible. And we've got people teaching us in Rogers and Mosaic and Bentonville and here in Fayetteville. And we want to teach the Bible because that's where the richness comes from. And last thing, the shameless plug. If you're hearing some of this and you've made it this far in sermon notes this week to minute 18, uh, we, uh, we want to help you be able to do this yourself. We actually have a Discover Your Bible class that'll be coming up here in about two weeks. Hank Matthews and myself will be helping you do exactly what we just did with this structure. How do you mark and understand transition words? What do verbs do? How do I read letters? What is the Bible? How can I grasp it for myself? And we're a Bible church. That's what we want to do. And so uh, if you've made it this far and you thought this was interesting, why don't you join us uh, that week? And if you've already taken our personal Bible study class, uh, bring the people you're discipling, bring your grandkids, uh, bring a friend, and let's help them understand how to read and study their Bible. It's always been something I've cherished being a part of this church as I was taught how to read the Bible. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be. Man, that's so good. And I'll, I'll jump on the shameless plug just by adding this. Um, Garland, you and I both studied at Dallas Theological Seminary. And the very first class you take, they teach you the exact things you and Hank are going to be teaching. This is a this is literally a seminary level how to read your Bible class, but you don't have to pay a lot of money or write a bunch of papers or get a grade. Yes. What a win. <laughs> so with that in mind, thanks for listening to Sermon Notes and enjoy your week. We'll see you Sunday.